Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the real first Thanksgiving happened in Florida 55 years before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. Father Francisco Lopez, the fleet chaplain, soon to be first pastor of the first parish, came ashore ahead of Pedro Menendez Aviles, the leader of the founding expedition, and um, then went forward to meet Menendez holding a cross. We'll discuss Florida's infamous Johns Committee. A state equivalent of the infamous McCarthy Committee was provided with broad powers to investigate individuals and groups deemed subversive. And we'll talk about efforts to save the historic Reddick Presbyterian Church all that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Eminent Florida historian Michael Gannon was author or editor of 10 books, including The Cross in the Sand from 1965. In that book, Dr. Gannon demonstrated how the real first Thanksgiving happened in St. Augustine in 1565, decades before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. A longtime professor of history at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Dr. Gannon taught several generations of Florida historians who are working in the state today. Gannon was formerly a Catholic priest and was working in St. Augustine in the early 1960s as the town was preparing to commemorate their 400th anniversary and the real first Thanksgiving. Dr. Gannon died in April 2017, but we spoke with him in 2015 as St. Augustine was preparing to recognize their 450th anniversary. There were a number of individual and institutional contributions to the 400th anniversary. And then there was a citywide coordinating committee that oversaw a lot of other activity collectively. As far as the Catholic Church is concerned, there were two major products of our efforts. I say I being a priest historian with the Diocese of St. Augustine at the time. First at the old mission uh, where the first parish mass was celebrated on September 8, 1565. It was decided to build a cross because that was central to the original ceremony where Father Francisco Lopez, the fleet chaplain, soon to be first pastor of the first parish, came ashore ahead of Pedro Menendez Aviles, the leader of the founding expedition, and um, then went forward to meet Menendez holding a cross 
and Menendez came on land, knelt, and kissed the cross. And so uh, Archbishop Joseph P. Hurley of the Diocese of St. Augustine thought it best to highlight the church's contribution by the erection of a very large cross. And ultimately, it was constructed of stainless steel and rose to a height of 208 feet. I think it is still the tallest freestanding cross in the Western Hemisphere. And I think it's very impressive. It, uh, it's stately. It has a wonderful design that was done by an architectural firm in Boston, Massachusetts. It uh, can be seen 14 miles out to sea, and it's grown among and upon uh, the people who live in this community and has become a symbol of the first mission to the North American natives and the first parish erected by Europeans in this country. Also part of St. Augustine's 400th anniversary was the construction of a contemporary church called the Prince of Peace and a bridge linking the church with the historic mission grounds. Plans were made for a library and research center on the property, but funding was not available. Today, visitors to the mission site can also see the statue of Father Francisco Lopez. That statue was erected in the 1950s. It was executed by a distinguished Yugoslav sculptor, Ivan Mestrovich. But it was placed in a copse of trees where it did not stand out against a dark background. And uh, the plan that the architects in 1965 came forward with was to move it to a site on open ground where the figure of Father Lopez with his arms in the air would stand out against the sky. And now, at long last, the statue has been moved to that space, and you can see the dramatic difference in uh, the figure of Father Lopez as he's seen completely and clearly now against uh, the sky, and directly in front of the cross, which stands behind him. As the Spanish began exploring and colonizing Florida, the Reformation movement was underway in Europe. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Henry VIII, and other Reformation leaders were protesting various practices of the Catholic Church and forming Protestant religions. In an effort to maintain its power and influence, the Catholic Church launched the Counter-Reformation. Part of that effort was to send Catholic missionaries around the world, including the New World of Florida. Michael Gannon explains that Spanish imperialism and Catholicism were inextricably linked. The two efforts were coterminous. Uh, everywhere uh, Spain moved politically and economically and militarily, the church moved too. The church was always a, a partner of Spanish expansion. And indeed, some of the great expansion of the church through her mission system preceded the advance of other elements of Spanish society. And uh, you can certainly see that in the interior missions of Florida during the 17th century, where missions stood out in the wilderness, apart from all of the other examples of Spanish colonial existence. And the friars of the Franciscan order lived very lonely lives servicing their people. So the church was in the forefront. If, uh, if, if, if you want to... Uh, uh, select any part of the Spanish cultural presence in Florida and the rest of the Spanish provinces of North America, you would have to say the, the church was in advance of all other institutions. St. Augustine is the site of the first Christian church in what would become the United States. 
As Michael Gannon points out, St. Augustine is also the site of our country's first school, first hospital, first court of law, first market, and first city plan. As the Franciscan missionaries tried to convert the Tamuquan Indians who inhabited the region, they discovered that the natives had no written language. A friar named Francisco Pereja developed a phonetic written version of the Tamuquan language, preserving it for us today. Although the Tamuquan people no longer exist, Michael Gannon brings their language to life by reciting the first sentences of the Lord's Prayer. Heka itamile numa hiban tema bisa milanema abak wano leta habema balunu nane mima noho boni habe. A bronze plaque at the mission site in St. Augustine shows the locations of dozens of missions scattered throughout Florida and the southeastern portion of North America. The attempts to convert Florida's indigenous peoples met with varied results. The natives were both welcoming and hostile, depending on the tribe. When the first missionary to attempt a pacifist approach to the natives he being uh, a Dominican friar who landed at Tampa Bay, the Indians were extremely hostile. They killed him at once. And prior to that, when a number of Franciscan friars and secular priests came with the second expedition of Juan Ponce de Leon to Florida in 1521 on the lower Gulf Coast, they were attacked by the Calusa natives of the site and driven back into the sea. So it depends. Uh, in most other particulars, the native peoples were welcoming, particularly in northern Florida. And that's where the Franciscans had their great successes when they came here in, beginning in 1573 and built missions up the Atlantic coast as far as the border between Georgia and South Carolina. And in the early 17th century, they moved westward across the peninsula and were generally welcome wherever they went and created their greatest number of missions up around the Appalachian country uh, centered on present-day Tallahassee. Those natives had been very hostile to earlier Spanish expeditions in the first half uh, of the 16th century, but in the mission century, they were very accommodating and welcoming to the Franciscan friars. So it depends. On, on balance, uh, the natives welcomed uh, the Christian religion and its principal exponents, the Franciscans. The native populations were not the only people who the Spanish missionaries tried to influence. As the British began establishing colonies to the north, the Spanish in Florida tried to encourage runaway slaves to embrace Christianity. Michael Gannon. First of all, during the Spanish period, when a large number of African slaves and 1740 and afterwards escaped from British plantations in the Carolinas, passed through Georgia and down to St. Augustine, where they were given their freedom and where Christianity was preached to them and where they were baptized and began to live normal Christian lives alongside their Spanish and Indian uh, cousins. This was the first Underground Railroad as these African-Americans, as you can call them by that date, sought freedom and did so by going to the protection of the Spanish flag and the Christian church. Generally, the slaves from the British plantations were 
never given the opportunity to learn the Christian religion because it taught the dignity of the individual person. And that's something the slave owners didn't want the slaves to learn about. The Spanish had just arrived in St. Augustine when their Thanksgiving dinner was shared with the Tamuqua on September 8, 1565. The Spanish had to do the best they could with leftovers from their long voyage. The menu was a stew of salted pork and garbanzo beans with ship's bread and red wine. While Floridians should proudly proclaim ownership of the first Thanksgiving in what would become the United States, we may want to retain the traditional menu of turkey, stuffing, vegetables, and cranberry sauce. Dr. Michael Gannon first wrote about the real first Thanksgiving in his 1965 book, The Cross in the Sand. We recorded this interview in 2015. He died in 2017. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find discounted books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, in the 1950s, Florida politicians targeted LGBTQ teachers and students at state universities. Historians today have been looking at what was known as the Johns Committee. In 2014, the Florida Historical Quarterly published a somewhat unusual article that combined a historiographic essay with reviews of two books and a documentary film. The focus of the combined essay and reviews was the seven-member Florida Legislative Investigative Committee established in 1956. A state equivalent of the infamous McCarthy Committee, the FLIC was provided with broad powers to investigate individuals and groups deemed subversive. The chair of the committee, State Senator Charlie E. Johns, became so identified with the work of the committee that most people called it the Johns Committee. Initially designed to thwart the implementation of the Brown v. Board of Education judgment by the U.S. Supreme Court, the committee focused on the work of the NAACP and other civil rights organizations. After a brief foray into the hunt for communists, by 1959, the committee had refocused its attention on identifying and removing gay and lesbian teachers in the Florida education system. Questioned without legal representation by the committee, teachers and students were threatened with public exposure and badgered into leaving their profession or their academic studies. 
Despite growing concerns about the activities of the committee, it continued its work until 1965. The article provides readers with insight into how historians work and an understanding of the history of the committee. Connie, as attitudes toward the LGBTQ community are evolving, historians have become increasingly interested in the history of the community. How are historians approaching this work? The article written by Judith Poucher shows us how access to new sources, the mentoring of graduate theses, and the historiographic dialogues between scholars produce a new body of scholarship. Access to primary sources is critical in the production of scholarship, and the study of the Johns Committee is illustrative of the problems historians encounter. The papers of the Johns Committee were sealed until 1993 when a push by a University of South Florida archivist and local legislators made the work of the committee available for research. Both USF and the University of Florida archives soon acquired collections of papers by university presidents and administrators, student newspapers, local branches of the American Association of University Professors, and the NAACP. The State Archives of Florida added collections of the correspondence of Governor Leroy Collins and Charlie Johns, as well as the Journal of the Senate. As access expanded, the volume of scholarship grew. An essay by Stephen F. Lawson in 1989 and two graduate theses written under his direction provided the foundation for the early scholarship on the Johns Committee activities. These sources continue to be cited as indication of their importance to the field. In 1999, Stacy Brockman completed a dissertation at the University of North Carolina titled Anti-Communism and the Politics of Sex and Race in Florida, 1954 to 1965. Brockman's work explored the use of the Cold War term subversive to encompass not only communists but homosexuals and civil rights activists. In 2003 and 2006, Judith Poucher published an essay in a book edited by Jack E. Davis and Carrie Fredrickson and an article in the Florida Historical Quarterly on the activities of Ruth Perry, a civil rights activist and journalist in Miami who had attracted the attention of the committee. This biographical approach to those targeted by the Johns Committee added a new dimension to the growing scholarship. Also in 2006, the FHQ published an article by Karen Graves on actions of the local American Association of University Women in reaction to the Johns Committee investigation of the University of South Florida. Graves built on her insights in the FHQ article and a second one in the journal Educational Studies to produce an important book-length study in 2009 titled, And They Were Wonderful Teachers, Florida's Purge of Gay and Lesbian Teachers. This first and second outpouring of scholarship led to the third round of analysis in 2011, 2012, and 2014. Connie, how is this new third round of scholarship different? Each historian builds on the work of previous scholars to ask new questions about the past, adopt new methodologies for presenting their work, and arrive at new interpretations. Robert Casanello and Lisa Mills, professors in history and film at the University of Central Florida, 
incorporated the study of the Johns Committee into their respective classes to produce an award-winning documentary film entitled The Committee. After setting up the circumstances that created the Johns Committee, the film focuses on the stories of a UF student and an FSU student who underwent interrogation by the committee, as well as a UF campus police officer who brought students in for questioning. Intended for young adults, the film introduces the history of the Johns Committee in a scholarly but sympathetic format accessible to a broad audience. Stacy Brockman's book, Communists and Perverts Under the Palms, The Johns Committee in Florida, 1956 to 1965, was published in 2012 by University Press of Florida. In the words of the reviewer, Brockman distinguishes her work from other scholarship on the FLIC by approaching the evidence with an emphasis on the committee's perspective. Her goal is to understand the committee's agenda and its supporters' view of a changing world order in order to explain why its mission resonated during and beyond its lifetime. Her analysis highlights the centrality of sexuality in the volatile political landscape regarding other 20th century social issues, desegregation, civil rights, juvenile delinquency, and obscenity. Judith Poucher's 2014 book, State of Defiance, Challenging the Johns Committee Assault on Civil Liberties, continues her focus on scholarly biography with chapters on five individuals, Virgil Hawkins, Ruth Perry, Sig Dietrich, Gigi Mock, and Margaret Fisher, to tell the story of those who survived and thrived following their encounters with the Johns Committee. This article does not simply tell a story. Rather, it provides an outline of a specific scholarship over three generations, a first generation that provided the narrative and the sources, a second generation that focused on the NAACP, K-12 teachers, and resistance to the Johns Committee, and a third generation that broadened the audience through new technologies, placed the Johns Committee in the context of the Cold War, and provided a context for those who triumphed despite the abuses by the committee. In outlining the three generations of scholarship, the article also provides a potential trajectory for the future. An important history. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker takes us to an endangered church in Reddick, Florida. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's annual 11 to Save list brings attention to the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. The Florida Trust included Reddick Presbyterian Church in Marion County on their annual 11 to Save list. Architectural historian and historic preservationist Laura Lee Corbett 
told me more about Reddick Presbyterian Church in Reddick, Florida, built in 1887 on the property of George and Callie Reddick. Reddick, Florida is a very small town in um, Marion County. It's less than 600 people. And it was developed because of the citrus industry. And Mr. Reddick, for whom the town was named after, deeded land over to the railroad company to bring the railroad in because they were having trouble uh, shipping the citrus to locations without it going bad. It was just sitting around too long. So they got a railroad that would go between Gainesville and Ocala, and the deal was that there would be a stop in Reddit. This is one of the um, structures that's kind of affiliated with that time period because the railroad stop was platted in 1882, and they organized the church just two years later and then constructed the current um, edifice that you see today that's endangered in 1887. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation accepts nominations from the public for their annual 11 to Save list. Nominations are considered each May, and the 11 to Save list is announced in July. I asked Laura Lee Corbett why she decided to nominate Reddick Presbyterian Church for inclusion on the list. What brought my attention to the structure is um, my family was doing a COVID getaway for Thanksgiving about a year and a half ago, and it's on a beautiful street, beautiful canopy streets in Reddick, and I'm cruising down on the bicycle, and I see this neat church, and I'm, I'm Presbyterian myself, and I was looking forward to going to church that Sunday, and then I realized it was no longer, the congregation had disbanded. So I ironically met a member of the, a former member of the Presbyterian Church at the Historic Methodist Church that is right next door. And she told me the plight of how their congregation had dwindled down to about 10 people. And so they were working with the Presbytery to decide the fate of the structure, which is vacant right now and apparently has some potential structural issues. The irony is that this church is in its original location, which would make it eligible for the National Register of Historic Places. The Methodist Church next door is in far better shape and has an active congregation, but was actually moved to that site. So that would make it not eligible for listing on the National Register. For over a century, the Reddick Presbyterian Church served as a vital part of the town's religious and social life. Recognizing it as one of the most endangered historic properties in Florida also helps bring attention to other historic churches in the state that are in need of preservation assistance. I work with a lot of churches, and this is a plight not just of Reddick or the Presbyterians, but um, really churches throughout the state as they have aging congregations. They've been dealing with COVID, meeting in person, et cetera, and to have these historic structures that they're kind of seemingly burdened with is an area of concern, and I'd, I'd like to see more kind of study and on this topic and ways that we could help really all houses of faith that are um, saddled with historic structures that they don't know how to continue to care for. The 11 to save list, as you've probably seen, reflects different situations of plight for historic structures. They're geographically spread out across the state, and they also kind of reflect different periods of histories and styles of architecture. And this, to me, just reflects old Florida. This is a just a fairly simple frame vernacular Victorian church. It's not big. It's not flashy. But I think sometimes these seemingly plain structures, if you will, sometimes have the biggest stories to tell. And I just thought this little town has something that reflects its origins, and that would be in this church. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the 11 to Save list, 
go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week and a happy Thanksgiving. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.